Welcome back to Unplugged in St Kilda. I'm Sally Moore, committee member of the St Kilda Historical Society and a music lover. Over the series, we've been talking to musicians who lived and played gigs in the local area in the 70s, 80s and 90s. They've been sharing their memories of St Kilda and what, in their opinion, made it such a great place for live music. Now, we've spoken to rock musicians, some post-punk musicians, and today we cross over into the jazz scene. St Kilda has an extensive jazz history, which dates back to the 1920s. We've had a range of venues supporting this style of music, including dance halls, coffee lounges and pubs. Today we're speaking to someone who first lived in St Kilda in the late 70s and early 80s. He flew off to New York and settled back here again in the early 90s and hasn't left since. Alan West is a jazz musician, but he also played a role as a booking agent. Today he's here to talk to us about his time running the Jazz Bar, Life Cafe, out of the St Kilda, St Kilda Bowling Club during the early 90s. Welcome to the show, Alan. Thanks, Sally. Thanks for the opportunity. Thanks for coming in. Now, I understand, Alan, that like me, you're also a member of the St Kilda Historical Society. They're playing a big part, along with the City of Port Phillip, in getting this podcast series recorded. So firstly, Al, can you give us a summary of your musical background and how you came to run the Life Cafe? Okay, well, I could start right back to when I was a little kid in front of a massive big wooden radio, bigger than me, sitting down with my brother listening to music. I'd listen to it all the time. And then uh, progressing through, uh, black and white TV came out and there were shows like um, Sunnyside Up with Bill Collins, who ended up the race caller after that. We stick glued to it. And, and I'd love all of – that was a variety show and, and I'd love all the tunes. And so I just grew up really appreciating music at around about 15. Jimmy Hendrix was still alive and he, he grabbed me by the ear and shook me up a bit. So I um, was um, learning and playing guitar, rock guitar, chasing Jimmy for a while. And then I progressed through my teens to, 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 to just uh, the end of my teens and I bumped into a bass player called Murray Wall he ended up living in New York for 40 years, a very great jazz player, introduced me to a, a guy called Charlie Parker and that was the end of it. That put me into jazz in, in the late 70s when all my buddies and everyone around me were chasing the big rock and roll promise. <laughs> but I, I wouldn't, uh, I, I was aware of it all and would listen to it, but my true love was uh, what was then called modern jazz. So um, that was... The musical bit. Now, what was the other part of the question? Oh, so just how you came to eventually running the Life Cafe. Uh, well, as time progressed, I learned pretty quickly that it was hard to make ends meet uh, playing jazz. So I eventually ended up with a collar and tie job uh, with mouths to feed and and I was a business agent running around selling restaurants, cafes that, uh, and the like. That introduced me to the right type of guys and, and a weird place, but um, I became friends with a guy called Peter Renstalactites. It was the first 24-hour place in Melbourne. And we made a deal and he gave me the, the, the top floor there Friday and Saturday nights and that was the start of Life Cafe. Yeah. And then it eventually moved to the Bowloom. We did one season, one season um, in the CBD and then an opportunity come... Uh, the the bolo at that time in the early 90s was really rock bottom, uh, which uh, 
they virtually jumped at the idea of me moving it there. It was a real win-win situation. So um, I took the club over to there and worked it out of the bolo Friday and Saturday nights. They had a, well, they kind of had a 24-hour licence. I'm not sure what it was, but we'd go to about, we'd close up at about four in the morning, Friday yeah. and Saturday nights. And tell me more about those years at the bolo. Well, um, again, uh, rock and roll was king and, and really well established. That's when you had all the big gigs everywhere. And um, so we made a little niche over there for ourselves. And um, uh, running from the bolo, we didn't have any of the overheads of the big gigs. So we could experiment and take risks. Um, uh, I got a lot of support from a guy called Adrian Jackson. He was writing What's On in the Age. I've got clippings almost a foot thick of clippings from his supporters who wrote us up a lot. We got a lot of free advertising out of that. Um, and um, basically um, giving really good players that, that hadn't fronted their own band the opportunity to actually do that. They're all – their names, I could reel them off. They're all really well known now. Uh, and it got to the point where even all the top dudes from Sydney would fly down, no money up front, and do a door deal. Uh there was trust in, in the jazz family and, and it worked really well like that for the five years I was there. Excellent. And what was St Kilda itself like during the time you ran the Life Cafe and how has it changed? Oh, boy. Well, we're talking <laughs> the 90s. I actually did move in earlier into the 80s. I could. Would you like me to talk about the, the 80s? Or sure. The 90s? You can speak about both if you like. That'd be great. That'd be nice because um, when I first came back from New York in the late 70s, I ended up... Uh, from living in London as well, and you had a squat, and there was all these squats going on Octavia Street, which runs onto the junction, so the Gilda Junction. So you had a young dude, I was 23 years old, young, this is a view of a young dude coming back from New York, <laughs> a bit arrogant, and um, living in a squat, seeing the really seedy side of St Gilda. It was, it was um, tough, Fitzroy Street was dirty and unloved, uh, heroin was all over the place. Um, but uh, the big thing that lives on from there, and I I always mention it, um, at that time, St Kilda was very well known. We'd roll up our sleeves, or not we, everyone virtually would in St Kilda, roll up their sleeves and help people that were worse off than them. There was no hmm, class distinctions, not the right word, but that's all I can think of right now. That didn't exist. It was more on a needs basis, and we really did help each other out and... uh, uh, St Kilda is really well known for that. Uh, the 90s brought in a different feel. Uh, it, was ju- it was just on the end of the recession. You could, um, even a friend of mine, um, I was involved with St Kilda Access TV, a friend of mine that was involved with them actually got Voludo before Voludo was named Voludo for six months free rent. You could get six months in free rent incentive all through Ackland Street and all through Fitzroy Street. They couldn't rent the places. Hello, does it ring a bell? Yeah. They couldn't ring the they couldn't rent the places. The whole thing was absolute rock bottom. Wow. So uh, for me though it was different because I was running the club with aspirations. And it, turning out of the recession was perfect for me. It was a bit like economic surfing. Get on the little wave and ride the wave up. Don't try and climb the big wave on the yep. economic surf. So I was seeing it uh, from those terms. Yeah. And how about how St Kilda changed from then? 
from, from nineties to now. Mm-hmm. Well, I don't want to ruffle too many feathers. Um, I don't think anyone would argue that it certainly has gentrified. Um, uh, the same thing happened with New York as well. I'd seen it, it happen on a faster scale. I would see whole neighbourhoods change within a year, just absolutely from um, the pits to sky-high rents, mainly the rents are your first indicator, um, and that's what's happened to St Kilda. Once rents increase, this is commercially and residentially, when they increase residentially, it's a brain drain. You lose all the fringe element of poets, artists, musos, all the people that live on the edge of not really being able to make a good income, but they can't afford to live here. They've got to go. So uh, this was uh, right before the start of that, the 90s. We were still in a recession. We're coming out of a recession and right through to 2000, I think we had the the dot-com bubble at 2000, was the peak of it. And that's when St Kilda had its last really... um, in moment. Yeah. And then after that, it copped a lot of competition from the inner northern suburbs who were operating exactly what St Kilda had operated off 10 years earlier. Yeah. Easy rents, affordable rents, uh, the feel of a rebirth. Um, uh, and that's now we're at the end of the repercussions of all that. That the north did pick up all the live music, the musos would could only afford to live in, in places like Northcote, uh, North Fitzroy, the, the cheap areas and stuff. So, um, so yeah, the, the main change is that uh, incorporated with this the effects of gentrification, what I call beigeness, um, things, St Kilda starts to lose the things that differentiated itself and the reason why people came here for that edgy feel uh, the Bayesianist tends to wipe that out and then people wonder what happened. Mm. So moving on to St Kilda in general, apart from the bolo, what were some significant places to you during your time that you've spent here? So maybe a venue or a restaurant or somewhere you lived? Well, working working the, the, the club, I didn't have much time on weekends because we'd finish at four. I was either working or recuperating all weekend. So I wasn't... Um, big on the restaurants at that stage, but um, from memory, the big gigs were um, the venue, Earl's Court, run by Gadaleri. Um I can remember going there and seeing 600 people there, seeing Chrissy Amphlett in the Divinals, what a, what a gig. Uh, just the place would hold 600 people so easily. Uh, you had um, coming around the corner of the SB. Doesn't need anything Everyone can remember the sticky carpets at the SB, <laughs> the Prince, same, same. And you had the Sea View, uh, also known as the Crystal Ballroom. That was the more of the punk era. They were your big uh, gigs that come to mind. Yeah. You've taken on us on a little walking tour around the, <laughs> around the it's corner. It's the only way I can remember it in <laughs> order of seeing it. What about any places that you lived or sort of buildings in the area? Well, I lived down. Now, uh, back in 96, a waterhouse down in West St Kilda, uh, I call it the suburbs of St Kilda, um, and it is. Uh, once you cross Fitzroy Street, you can, can feel the compression, the same compression I used to feel like in, in on Manhattan. There's an intensity. As soon as you cross the street, either way, it releases when I walk back. So uh, I tended to 
you know, five-minute walk was could have been a million miles at some times for the events that were going on. So I kind of cushioned myself away there. And um, uh, so I don't kind of profess to be an expert of exactly what was going on in downtown St Kilda. Yeah. Um, but, um, I mean, it's full of lovely old buildings. I, 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 I work a lot, work hard a lot at the moment um, with trying to slow down overdevelopment. I run a website called Friends of St Guild, it's well known, present at council, get a bit political at times, um, all in the effort to, um, you can't stop the progression but at least yep. to slow it down or if it's going to be nine storeys, try to make it eight, leave a yeah. little bit of blue sky. Yeah. So I see it more from that angle. And um, I understand you had a bit of a role to play in trying to stop the Greyhound. Y- yes. Yeah. I was one of the founding members of Save the Greyhound. And when we took that on, we knew it was a, a losing cause because the demolition permit had already been issued. Um, but we did. We went through the whole thing anyway. Um, I was working with a, a woman just for the second now, I've lost her name, but but who who had worked for Melbourne Council, she knew the game inside out. And um, uh, we ended up putting a really good case for the Greyhound. They even did an, another historical um, assessment. Great. Uh, but, you mm. know, it's hard to unwind um, issues. Some of the successes we had was the the rooftop at the sea baths. Yes. We won that one. They wanted, it's a long story, but um, they wanted to grab the top. I mean, they were given that pl- place with, with agreements, lease agreements in the first place that, that gave compensation for rent uh, if they left the rooftop open to the public. Yeah, such a beautiful view, uh, so. <laughs> and they did try to do a slide back. Uh, yeah. uh, that's my view anyway, allegedly. Well, the VCAT stopped it anyway, put it that way. Um, and I was also a, a foundation member of the um, uh, Christchurch. Uh, they were going to try and do a big care, care centre there. And uh, so I was in the, I didn't go all the way with it, but I, I was in the founding um, campaign, put it all together. Uh, to save Christchurch. Oh, it was at the daycare centre. The, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For a few, mm. just a few years ago. Mm. Yeah. So, what impact do you think jazz music had on St Kilda? Um, and it doesn't have to just be in the from the seventies to the nineties. It can be over time as well. Well, just brief history from the fifties on. We had. Um, there was a jazz club called 444 that was on the Green Knoll where Macca's is now. Yes. And um, the SB used to put on jazz as well. The Gershwin Room, Gershwin is a, he wrote, <laughs> is a jazz name. He wrote yep. a lot of jazz standards. <laughs> so so there, there was a presence for jazz. I'm not sure in the days before the 50s it was a lot stronger because dance halls, a lot of people would meet their wife, their husband and wives would meet up or it was the social um, Get together place, but um, as we pushed on from when I was there in the late seventies, jazz wasn't well. Jazz was really waning. Rock and roll had knocked it right off its pedestal. Uh, rock and roll was king, and I guess it still is. So it was more of a niche thing. Um, so I wouldn't say jazz had that much of an impact on St Kilda itself. It was just part of the whole the whole whole colouring pencil. Um, yep. <laughs> collection. It was just a few of the colours within that. Um, That's a nice way of putting it. Mm. <laughs> and I bet it was different from coming back from New York. Uh, different 
the the philosophy of the jazz was the same yeah. in some ways. Um, um, I mean, my first remembrance of St Kilda and Melbourne was that Melbourne was just a big old country town. But from the 90s on, it wasn't so much of a country town and it caught up the 20 years it was behind. When I first went to New York, I noticed how Melbourne was about 20 years behind. Right. It caught up and Melbourne's and St Kilda, they're, they're in international locations. Yep. Mm. <laughs> and so why do you feel the suburb of St Kilda was so important for live music? Well, again, it, it, it grew out of being... An entertainment precinct with your with your um, big dance halls, the beach. Uh, the, uh, a lot of those dance halls were on uh, public land, so there's a slight different approach to it all. Uh, Luna Park, same same. Um, it grew out of being an entertainment district, um, so it just naturally um, followed through with live music. As as I said before, jazz was waning, rock and roll was 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 um, taking over. So it became a natural place because it already had these old buildings where they could put on a, a, a gig with 2,000-seated people. So um, um, that combined with, at the time, the lower rents, the musicians were living in the area as well. Uh, you had a local scene. Um, uh, it was just fertile ground. Um, that's about the way I see it. Okay. And um, do you think this still stands? Mm. Um, times have changed. Mm. Um, St Kilda's much more expensive area to be in now to even operate a business in. Um, there's congestion, there's parking problems. It seems to be everybody just talks a whole bunch of problems. I mean, even with the last 10 years, um, every time a dog barked in St Kilda it would get onto one of Murdoch's papers. They seem to just be writing it down, writing it down. Um, so... Um, the natural yo-yo effect, I mean, fashion comes and goes and it's all timing and leading edge and has been. Um, uh, it would if the ball, I used to call it the big ball, would roll from South Melbourne to St Kilda a little bit. It would roll down to South Melbourne and you'd have all the GTV9 guys down at the Golden Gate and partying on and, and then it would roll back to St Kilda 10 years later. It's just <laughs> this fashion thing. Everyone wants something new. Yep. Uh uh, and the new thing of the last 10 years, I think, is the northern suburbs with where the young people are at, um, where the creatives live. They, they tend to, um, I don't know, they just change the vibe. The place vibrates different. Yeah. So um, St Kilda's, it's been, Fitzroy Street in particular has been up and down many times over the last 100 years. Uh, yeah. the, the time I was talking back in the 90s, it was way down the bottom. And I think also the late 70s, it wasn't much better. So it may very well come back again. Yep. Who knows? We'll wait and I see. hope it does. <laughs> and if it is going to come back, what do you think has to be done for that to happen? Well, there's been a lot of, um, there's been a lot of um, head power and a lot of dollars thrown at it, uh, all to not much avail. Um and I'm no expert. I don't want to sit here and think I've got all the answers anyway. All I know is um, that, as I mentioned before, St Kilda was St Kilda because it wasn't somewhere else. It, had, it was distinct. It had certain edgy things, good and bad, had certain things going on. With 
gentrification, you get this what I call beigeness, as I mentioned before as well, and it all becomes the same. So I think the only way I can see is to try to hang on to um, the old charm, the old world charm St Kilda had before. It made it different. There's, Melbourne's not very old and the old buildings said something about it, had some history, made it look different. So I think if we try to hold on, I mean, I know everyone talks progress and the dollar shapes everything, um, but maybe don't kind of knock up a whole lot of concrete on the rubble of beautiful old buildings, might be somewhere to start. Keep the character of St Kilda. Um, as the years progress, it's just going to be more and more distinction. It's going to be more and more different. Same as look at Yarraville. Yeah, they've they've hung on to their two story buildings. Um, that will really it, someday that will be just like hen's teeth. It'll they'll put lights on it and you have to pay to get into it. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, we've been pretty lucky to have these old buildings for as long as we've had them. So personally, I see that as a lot of character. Lot, yeah, I've always um, grown up. I grew up in Carlton as a child. Yep, and uh, even. My dad was a barber. Even the shop we had was part of a pub foundations over 100 years old, so I'm a bit biased. Yeah. <laughs> old buildings have high ceilings. I love something with a bit of high ceiling. I don't aren't like they? the head squeeze of, of new pokey apartments. Yeah. Mm. So, Al, you mentioned that you grew up in Carlton. Mm-hmm. So what made you move to St Kilda? Uh, well, the Carlton bit was um, with my parents, of course, but um, later on uh, – I'd gone and squatted in St Kilda. That was more just opportunity and knowing friends and, and there was musos and whatever, just kind of that wasn't really preordained. It just happened. But obviously when I bought the house in St Kilda in, in 96, that was a, uh, at the time I thought a well-thought-out decision. My parents were going, don't buy in St Kilda. <laughs> uh, but remembering that I'd lived in New York, I had that way of life in me and the jazz for for a jazz player then specifically and now also but really back then um New York was mecca for for jazz players yep. it was ground zero so i guess in melbourne the only place that really kind of resembled the way that new york operated was St Kilda yeah um so it was just a natural attraction for me to and like i said i, I grabbed a house in 96 and even from then on, I always figured, well, you can bury me in the backyard. <laughs> I, I, I had no intention of like skipping out within a couple of years or whatever. I just, it just, um, the whole place um, en- enveloped. I just love the lifestyle. I like the edginess. Um, and I like the rawness of the place, plus all the benefits, all the bars, all the conversations, all the muses, artists, poets. Uh, Back then, all the gigs everywhere, it was just jumping. The whole place was jumping. Um, so uh, there was nowhere else. And then, and then there hasn't been since. Excellent. Alan, thank you so much for joining us today. It has been a great, it's been great to hear your perspective on what made St Kilda such a great place for live music. Thanks for sharing your thoughts and opinions and memories with us. Uh, thanks for having me. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you. It's so important that we as locals do whatever we can to make sure St Kilda remains uh, remains a musical hub and somewhere where history is so magical here. Thanks for tuning in and see you next time. You're going home in the back of a deer.
podcast was recorded on the land of the Kulin Nation. I'd like to thank the St Kilda Historical Society and its committee for the opportunity to carry out this project and for all their support along the way. The Historical Society does a lot of work throughout the year to preserve the history of our local area and make it accessible for all. Members pay $20 a year to join and receive three newsletters per year full of information and great stories. They have events throughout the year, including local history walks, talks and presentation of new research. See their website, stkildahistory.org.au, for more information. Our local council, the City of Port Phillip, does so much to support the magnificent arts here in St Kilda. A big thank you to the council for their funding in this podcast series as part of their Cultural Development Fund. Thank you for seeing the value of this project and, in particular, thank you to Sharon Dawson for your guidance along the way. We look forward to seeing the other projects from this round of funding come to fruition as well. Sending out a big thank you to the animals for their assistance with the promotional side of this project. The animals are a one-stop shop for advertising, brand building and ID generation and have collaborated with many companies both here in Melbourne and around Australia. See their website, theanimals.com.au, for more. The Unplugged in St Kilda podcast was recorded at Big Ears Audio, 97 Wellington Street, St Kilda. I'd like to take a moment to thank Tony, Adrian, Laz and their team for doing such a brilliant job recording, editing and producing the series and for their professional advice along the way. And last but not least, I'd like to thank my wonderful volunteers who helped me put this series together, all the artists who gave their time for interviews and to you, the listener, for joining me. I've had a great time creating this project and I hope you enjoyed it. Thank you.